Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is a podcast about museums and education. Today on the show, I am joined by Paul Thompson, who is someone who I think has a kind of unique position in the design world. Since 2009, Paul has been the vice chancellor of the Royal College of Art in London, where he's expanded how we can think about art and design education, including doing things like adding a variety of science and technology faculty to their staff there. Before the RCA, he was the director of the Cooper Hewitt Design Museum here in New York from 2001 to 2009. And before that, he was the director of the Design Museum in London from 1993 to 2001. And so while Paul has spent two decades running arguably the two biggest and most popular dedicated design museums in the world, he actually doesn't come from a design background. He has a PhD in comparative literature. And so I obviously was really interested in talking to him about all of this. This conversation begins with the connections between his PhD work and design and how he became a curator and had to essentially learn on the job educating himself on design history while he was actually kind of putting on shows. We also talk about running design museums and how he thought about his time as director at both the Design Museum and the Cooper Hewitt and the differences between those as well as the intersections between the arts and administration. As I said, I think he comes to design from a really unique vantage point. And it was so great to hear his thoughts on this kind of changing nature of design over the course of his career. Scratching the Surface is made possible through listeners like you. If you enjoy the show and want to help support it, you can become a member for just $5 a month or $50 a year. That means that by becoming a member, you help support the ongoing production of the show, and it truly means so much to me. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that is written by me, as well as previews of the upcoming episodes. If you like Scratching the Surface and if you want to see it continue, please consider becoming a supporting member. For all the details, you can just go to our website at scratchingthesurface.fm members. Thank you, as always, for listening and enjoy this conversation with Paul Thompson. I'd like to start this conversation by going kind of all the way back um, to your time as a student and, and early in your career because uh, in my research and preparing for this conversation, it was it was kind of hard to find uh, a lot of information about your the early part of your career. But I was able to find that you were teaching English for a while, and then very suddenly it seems like started working in the design world. And so I'm I'd like to start by kind of talking about that time and where your interest in design came from. Kind of what were you doing at that time? And uh, what prompted this kind of move into the design and architecture world? It's uh, it's it's a question I still try and answer myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The, uh, the, the well, I the, the 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 truth of the matter is, I mean, I I studied comparative literature uh, mm. and uh, particularly dramatic literature, turn of the century, eighteen seventy to nineteen seventeen, I think it was in 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 my um, in my sort of thesis title. Uh, and I was um, I was interested in modernist literature um, and how one then sort of kind of starts cross you know migrating into into to sort of um, you know that sort of sort of migration through to 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 to, to other art forms 
um, was not wildly different for me. But what modernism meant in um, in literary time, in, t- in literary terms, compared to what modernism meant in um, design and architectural terms at the beginning of the last century, were really very different. Um, and I think I, I sort of bumped into that by mistake. Uh, okay. And it interested me um, just how one word, you know, to describe an ism that can be applied to literature um, and to the built environment actually means profoundly different things to different people. I mean, almost the opposite. Um, so that sort of intrigued me. But as I said, I sort of bumped into that and I, I just kind of pursued, continued with my kind of doctorate um, and, and sort of finished that. And then, of course, you know, you're looking for a job uh, and you're looking to sort of find um, a way in life. And um, I saw a job advert at the Design Council, which was a, is a government, was a government-funded agency. It was founded in 1947, just after the um, Second World War. And it was a time where, you know, again... Um, enlightened government basically and it had happened before that in 1851 um but again enlightened government turned to um to 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 recognize that we were pretty good as a nation at manufacturing but we weren't very good at designing um and we didn't really um match the kind of competitive design advantages of, of other nations and that we really should be investing and educating the public you know it was always that very kind of strong um rather patrician view of of, of of making sure that people have good taste um, that kind of came to the forebear and the Council for Industrial Design was born. Um, uh, and it was starting to kind of wane and ebb and seem incredibly anachronistic by the time I joined it in the 19, 1980s. It had really kind of lost its way um, because people realised British public knew exactly what good design was. Um, and they didn't really particularly care where it was made. Um, and they were probably more interested in buying, you know, a Sony Walkman or an Audi, <laughs> an Audi car right. than they were in, in buying um, British designed and manufactured goods. Um, so I worked there as a researcher and a scriptwriter. Um, and so basically, as you kind of tell, you know, what do you, what, what are you trained to do when you come out with a PhD? Well, you've got public <laughs> expertise, but in terms of your skills, it's basically writing and researching. Um, right. And I applied for the job uh, and I got it. Uh, and I worked there reasonably contentedly, I would say. It was pretty easy going in a sort of government agency. It was, you know, like a federal agency. It was very yeah. kind of nine to five which sort of suited me at the time. Uh, and then I sort of, so, you know, that was, I mean, I have to sort of rewind a little bit and sort of say I was always interested in fashion and I was always interested in architecture. Um, okay. So I, you know, I, I, I used to look at buildings um, and recognise that the, the buildings that I most liked were by an architect called Wells Coates, Canadian architect. Um, and I don't think I knew his name at that time, but just, serendipitously you know the couple of buildings that I'd seen of his um I liked a lot so I wasn't completely immune to um uh, you know the world of visual culture um so then I was sort of you know at the design council and I saw this job advertised for a museum of of of, of industrial design the Conran Design Museum 
And I was very struck by that sort of Le Corbusian idea of a museum of the everyday. You know, why can't you have a museum of everyday objects rather than um, a museum of, you know, precious um, ancient artefacts? Um, I knew I wanted to work in the cultural sector. Um, I loved the kind of the startup mentality. I and mean, nobody used the word startup in those days. You know, I love that kind of startup mentality, being in on the ground on something that was completely new. Um, it was couched in um, in a very sort of seductive um, and appealing way uh, for somebody like me who, you know, again, as I said, I, you know, I didn't really have a, a, a sort of a particular knowledge about what working in a museum would mean. Um, but having joined the Design Museum, um, it was a very fast track escalator um, because it was a startup. I mean, you know, what one learned in one year at the Design Museum would probably take you eight years to learn in any other environment because, you know, it was only you and a couple of other people to do it. Uh, and if you just had to figure it out, um, you couldn't pass the job on to another department um, or call upon people with greater expertise um, because, frankly, there weren't any. You know, it was very much kind of startup mentality. Um, so I worked there, um, again, using my kind of detective skills as a researcher on contemporary design, um, looking at interesting new prototypes, concepts that had yet to see the light of day, um, that perhaps never would see the light of day, which, again, quite interested me. You know, what is it that, that parks um, a, a prototype in in the kind of uh, you know in the side lane and it never actually gets through into production i was kind of interested in in those sort of ideas and i thought the public would be too and they certainly were um it was quite a popular gallery um that i ran there because a lot of the things were you know yet to come onto market or yet to be launched on the european market um where we had some japanese cars that had you know perhaps only a limited edition Nissan car that had only ever been seen at, you know, the Tokyo Motor Show and had yet, and they had no intention of ever launching it in, in the UK. So those sort of things were, were, were the kind of um, products uh, that I was sort of looking at. And then I kind of climbed my way up, up the table pole, and I became sort of head of, of, of the chief curator there. Um, and then the museum fell into... Um, you know, like so many startups, you know, it had a kind of real liquidity cash flow problem. It kind of mixed its capital um, st- uh, budget with its revenue budget. Um, it a great thing to have done. Nobody sort of separated what the cost of the building would be from what the cost of running the building would be. Um, so it hit kind of pretty bad financial trouble. It had sort of more directors than post-war Italian government. Um, it was on directly left for three weeks. Um, oh wow! And then another who sort of lasted, I think, eighteen months. And Terry Conran um, had seen an exhibition that I did on um, organic design. I was looking at people like you know, wonderful um, Hungarian American Eva Zeisel and oh yeah, yeah. Gaudi, uh, and, and looking at, at, at sort of organic forms. Um, in design and it was quite a small show had a tiny budget uh Terence really liked it so he then said to me and I think I was about oh god probably about age 32 or something at the time he said I think you should apply to be director I want you to be the director <laughs> um and that was a really kind of quite a poison chalice because you sort of think well if I don't apply 
I'm a marked man. <laughs> right. I, I will, you know, I, I basically have told the boss I don't want the job, so what will he do with me? Right. Uh, and if I apply for it, what happens if I get it and I can't do it? Um, will I be a <laughs> failed, um, you know, post-war Italian prime minister? Um, so I, I can yeah. remember vividly having a... Um, a kind of soul-searching weekend and thinking, oh, sod it, I'm, I'm just going to apply for it. And I did, and I got it. I got through the interview yeah. panel. Um, and then I had to basically um, restructure and rebuild um, at the finances of the institution. I mean, I think we, we were brimming with great ideas, but I had to have the kind of the boring task of suddenly trying to, you know, make the thing work financially. Um, yeah. I knew nothing about finance i didn't know how to read a you know spreadsheet or or, or a PL or anything like that um and i was actually taught by one of our trustees um, mm. uh, how to do that in a very generous <laughs> way um and i just just had to kind of figure out how can you be a david um and really be a david mm. rather than be a david with a goliath budget yeah um, i mean the the, the... I, I have like 20 questions that I could ask you about mm. about this. And this 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 kind of gets to the core of something that I'm interested in. But before before we do that, I, I mm. something that, that strikes me in hearing you talk about this that I, I guess I hadn't really thought about before. Well, one, I, I, I don't really think of the design museum anymore as a startup. And so it's interesting to think yeah. about it in those early days yes. as a startup. And I think you're exactly right because something that was interesting to me as you were talking about this is like you said you 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 have this phd you're studying comparative literature and then suddenly you're thrown into this design world with what sounds like you know essentially a a uh, a fan's level of knowledge of design i don't mean that in a bad way you know you you were aware of it and i was i was what i didn't realize is how much of your career has been self-taught then learning on the job. Um, how, how did you kind of do that as you were moving up the ladder at the design museum, even when you were at the design council, how were you thinking about, I need to build up a, a, a knowledge around these things while at the same time actually doing the job, <laughs> you know, like those things happening at the same time. How did you think about that? Well, I suppose, one of the, well, I mean, it's a fairly narrow canon. You know, if you're a museum of industrial design, you, right, you, right, are, right. you you're really talking about, you know, a 150 year time span. Um, or if you want to be kind of really, um, pe- not pedantic, but, you know, if you more accurately, you could take it back to, you know, Wedgwood. So it was 200 years of, of history. So it's not, it's a narrow mm-hmm. But you're right. it, it's not like you know how the hell did you become an expert in <laughs> you know yeah yeah you know greek antiquity yeah. um because you know it, it's a much more narrow canon um that's true and yeah. the museum's mission was really it was really quite tight um so uh, you know and, and and many of the names as i you know, mentioned the corbusier or whoever you know many of the the, the names of people uh you know i i you know, knew who Richard Sapper was. I was interested in Etterisotsas. You know, I so I, I okay, yeah, completely. You know, unknown and trying to kind of figure out how to pronounce their names. I mean, I, I, I had some sort of had some some knowledge of 
of that field. But um, I suppose by the t- by the time um, I'd sort of reached that, I mean, also you've got to acknowledge, you know, I was with some very um, expert and very bright people. You know, it wasn't just me on my own. I mean, yes, we were staff, right. but there were some very very um, talented curators uh, alongside me, um, and, mm-hmm. of course, yeah, uh, and, and, and helping to to do the programming um, and, and, and figuring things out. So very often, you know, if it, if it was an idea that somebody else had and they were an expert in the field, what I was probably bringing to bear was an interpretive um, plant. Mm-hmm. You know, well, how would this, how would this, you know, resonate with the general public who aren't really seeing this kind of thing in a museum anyway? Um, so mm-hmm. I was probably playing that, more of that kind of, um, that role. Uh, but yeah, the design museum was very much a, 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 you know, it was a startup. Yeah. You know, it was, it was a small private museum. It was the first time the UK had had a private museum, um, for probably, you know, a hundred years or so. Um, yeah. And it had this kind of, you know, Colossus in, in Terence Conran, um, sort of behind it, which, which meant it got a huge amount of publicity, um, in a way that it wouldn't have had if it had had a less a lesser known right. uh, you know patron. And, and what's something that I'm really interested in talking to you about, and and you know especially kind of hearing you know hearing you say that that he asked you to apply for the directorship and the kind of uh, nerves I guess that you had about whether you could even do that is you've you had basically now a 20-year career as a museum director and learning the finances on the job again. Uh, you've proven yourself, or it turns out, uh, maybe surprising mm-hmm. yourself even, mm-hmm. that you're a really good administrator uh, mm-hmm. and that that those other set of skills are, are something that you're really good at. And I'm Something I'm I'm really interested in lately is this kind of intersection between the arts and administration, and and how administration fits into these types of of institutions and and people who are working within and among uh, artists and curators who are also thinking about the business side. Can you talk a little bit about? those skills and how you saw your role both at the design museum and cooper hewitt actually as being director of thinking about finances thinking about buildings and expansion but then also Mm -hmm. working on the creative side uh with the curators thinking about programming how did all that fit together for you how did those skills kind of come together what what skills did you kind of discover that you had kind of working through that i think it probably it sort of comes back to to, to, to that comment, comment I, made, I made earlier about, you know, you're not necessarily, you know, the specialist in the field, mm-hmm. but you've got an ability to grasp the essence of what a specialist is trying to convey mm. and then trying to come out. Right. I can remember, actually, when I was at Cooper Hewitt, I worked with an incredibly talented woman called Sarah Coffin, who was our mm. 18th century, 17th and 18th century design curator. Um, and, and I remember teasing her and saying, look, you've got to try and get this, you know, who's the audience? It can't just be 12 people who are on the staff of the Met. You know, you have to <laughs> right. get it right. and make people understand um, why the Rococo was so startling 
um, and, 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 and so shocking in its day because it broke so many of the different rules. And now we look at, think of, you know, pe- most people are thinking of mm-hmm. cocoa as being, you know, rather sort of sickly, saccharine sweet and, 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 and you, you know, so mm-hmm. how do you get across that, that sense of shock? Um, uh, so I think, I, I suppose I'm probably, I think I'm quite good at helping people, trying to kind of extricate the essence of, mm-hmm. of of an idea that somebody who is so specialised and so specialist um, perhaps has sort of forgotten um, and just helping to kind of tease that out um, and try and sort of package it, present it. Um, make, that makes me sound more like a marketeer and I don't think I am that, but <laughs> it's more, I think it is a more interpretive sort of role, trying to kind of facilitate um and trying to get those those ideas out um, to the yeah. broader public. Well, how do you how did you do that, or how do you think about? I think it's interesting, you know, how you said that it makes you almost sound like a like a marketer or something mm. like that. Because I think that's I think that's an interesting dilemma, especially when you're working with curators who are, you know, oftentimes the most knowledgeable person yeah. in the world yeah. <laughs> on on this subject um how do you how do you present something like that that sometimes can appear esoteric to a bigger audience without it seem seemingly like you are marketing it cheapening it uh popularizing it there's there has to be some sort of uh balance there where there there is some marketing but it, it is not about marketing and branding in some way also i think you, yeah you've got to be really careful because i think uh, particularly at the moment in the kind of museums world i mean you know both sides of the atlantic you know museums um live or die on their last blockbuster um, <laughs> right and, and you know curators are constantly being kind of herded into into you know selecting shows that are you know Monet's Water Lilies or, you know, another monograph on another, um, you know, fashion designer or, or whatever. And I think it's, it is, I think from a curatorial perspective, you've got to be very careful not to sort of, to, to corral people down that route all the time. But but the kind of the financial necessities of most big museums, whether it's Victoria and Albert or, or the Met or the Cooper Hewitt or whatever, is that, you know, you have to have a blockbuster to pay for all the other things. Um, I'm not really answering your question very well, but I think where you kind of strike gold is where actually with, we mentioned her earlier, somebody like Ellen Lupton, and I can remember the yeah. skin exhibition at Cooper Hewitt and thinking, oh you know, yeah, it was just so ahead of its time. Um, yeah, I forgot all about that. And That's it didn't need that much expl- explaining or interpreting or, you know, you didn't kind of need to be a midwife to kind of coax it into to life. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember reading the kind of the thesis statements for the show and thinking, my God, this is just so exciting. <laughs> um, it, it's just endless. Yeah. The possibilities for this are endless. And of course, the way that, that Ellen you know, rolled out um, the thesis mm-hmm. for so many different aspects of, of the made the man-made environment. I mean, it, it was just, in a sense, a dream come true. And I think it's pointing to examples like that um, mm-hmm. that you can try and explain to people, look, this is, this is what you've got to try and aim for. It's, it's something that might be a bit esoteric um, and it might be very ahead of the curve, but actually 
it's just so stimulating and so um, right. provocative that, that that it's just going to you know resonate. You know, it'll be just like wildfire. It'll be amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's something. I think you're exactly right that Ellen is someone who's really good at she she is so knowledgeable about these subjects and comes from an academic background but presents them presents these ideas in a way that is not at all academic or uh elitist or uh you know unreachable uh and and the way she's able to communicate that i think she's one of the best in yeah. in graphic design especially but in design generally um, she's got amazing. She's got amazing flair. I mean, that's really yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah. She's she's got yeah. incredible imagination and she's very very creative. But it's it's just that kind of flair um, that takes a subject and, and 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 can can make such an incredible dish. <laughs> right. 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 And it's it's you know it's interesting you know especially kind of comparing the Cooper Hewitt or the Design Museum to a place like the Victorian Albert or or the Met mm-hmm. uh, in that both the Design Museum and the Cooper Hewitt were and largely still are two of the few dedicated design museums in the world. And mm-hmm. I'm curious how you thought about positioning, not to get you know too mm-hmm. marketing, mm-hmm. branding sounding again, mm-hmm positioning the missions of both of those institutions within the larger museum landscape, but then also within their uh, kind of geographical landscape. How do you, how did you think about, here's how we talk about design for London or for New York and kind of for a general audience. So it isn't just for the 12 Met curators mm-hmm. or the handful of designers who mm-hmm. are interested in this this subject. How did you kind of think about that? Well, they're both in some ways. I mean, yeah, the, the Coupier and Design Museum have kind of very different. I think the challenge was very different. For One was kind of regarded, the Design Museum was regarded as an upstart. You know, it, mm-hmm, it was mm-hmm. kind of rather cheeky, um, slightly brash isn't quite the right word, but it was it was you know a cocky upstart basically. It was it was the kind of the new kid on the block um, right. that um, was a little bit provocative uh, and and so, um, provocative towards its own public, but also kind of provocative to its peer institutions because every time another museum tutted it, um, it kind of you know, put two fingers up again at, at the kind of the museum establishment. So it was sort of playing a sort of slightly kind of yeah. It was it wanted it liked being kind of brat bratish. Um, Cooper Hewitt. I mean, to me, I mean, the the challenge of Cooper Hewitt was that it was just covered in dust. Um, you know, it, it was just the, everything about it. You know, its collection was amazing. Um, and its building is, is sort of kind of a challenge and extraordinary um, and, and in many ways dysfunctional. But then, you know, what did it have in its favour? Well, it had extraordinary curators who were working there. Um, and um, I, it just sort of struck me that, you know, it could be, it was a great fixer-upper. You know, it had not had a director um, in post for, I think it was about 18 months by the time I arrived. Um, because Diane Pilgrim had, had, had retired and was, was really 
gravely ill, I think, for, for the last couple of years of her tenure as director anyway. So the thing had, had really been run by, you know, the chief administrative officer um, uh, and the Smithsonian from, in D.C. So it just struck me as being this wonderful sort of fixer-upper in a city that was open to new ideas um, and that took a lot of care um, and pride in its museums. Um, I didn't sort of know that all the kind of politics at the time. I didn't realise that, you know. I mean, I remember joking with somebody and saying, well, I'll either be kind of have a sort of concrete slab and a chain around my neck in the Potomac River or in the East River. I'm not likely to get out of this place alive, you know. It was sort of, you had to kind of be in a way those two sort of worlds. And I, I wasn't quite sure um, what that meant, but I, I liked being part of the Smithsonian because the Design Museum had, you know, like most brats, you know, after a bit, or, you know, kids, upstarts, you know, people start to tire of your company, probably. Um, and I like the idea of being part of this larger constellation of inquiry, of intellectual inquiry that embraced, you know, zoology and astrophysics and all the things that the Smithsonian were. So that kind of appealed to me a lot um, in, in the job. Um, but the museum communities, I suppose, of both cities are, well, gosh, I mean, you know, they're very different and, and probably very different again because um, it's it's now nearly 20 years since I started at Cooper Hewitt. Yeah, and I don't mean, I mean, we, I promise this whole conversation won't be talking about the jobs that you mm. had <laughs> 20, 20 years ago. Um, but this is a question that I think can start to kind of connect us to the work you're doing now and, and start to look to the future a little bit because it is interesting that you were at these museums at this point 20 years ago and I am endlessly fascinated with the evolution of the word design uh, over the last 30 years, yeah. even over the last yeah. 10 years, yeah. honestly. Um, the kind of cultural awareness of design has increased. Um, I think things like, you know, obviously uh, the computer even more so the iPhone and mobile phones have made people's kind of consciousness of graphic design uh, much greater. Uh, I think there are celebrity designers now that people who are not designers know about. The, the, the design world is so different uh, and has expanded in all sorts of, of ways. And I would love to hear your thoughts on this kind of evolution of the term design or design's expanding definition and how you kind of uh, think about that? I, I think, I mean, I, well, to begin with, I, I agree with you. I think it has evolved. I mean, it was all, it, it, it is, and it always has been an incredibly broad church. You know, and there's so many different disciplines within design and certainly being at the Royal College of Art now, and if I trace back the history of the college as to when it started to sort of subdivide and, and you know, create a taxonomy of design, it's quite interesting, you know, what gets granted um, its own title and, what's, and what gets granted a degree and what doesn't, what's still classified as, as a diploma-based subject. Um, but, I mean, yeah, design is, is, is such uh, an all-encompassing term, and I think... From a kind of museum and a collecting perspective, there's more of a blurring between material culture or the you know, material culture and 
um, design that I think than I think there was probably you know 30 40 years ago I think that that museums are now looking at things um, through a material culture and a design lens um, whereas I'm not sure that was always the case um, I think you know it, it it's I think the kind of the um, should we say the unease between architecture and design is disappearing. I think that that, that certainly it's it's kind of it's it's more embrace. I think you know architects are more embracing um, of the term design uh, yeah. and and other forms of, of of design and material culture um, and the built environment than than just the singular building um, or you know, the, the planned um, landscape of, of, of a city. I think I think people, everybody feels much more at ease, I think, with other disciplines um, and maybe mm-hmm. a kind of fluidity that, of, of, and that sort of transdisciplinary world that we now mm-hmm. live in. I'm mm-hmm. much more comfortable with, with that. I think the kind of hierarchies um, have flattened a lot more um than they were yeah yeah it's interesting i'd I'd love to uh this is this is not something that i was thinking about asking you but um i agree with you completely and something i've been thinking about is i perhaps naively thought this kind of multidisciplinary transdisciplinary you know it felt so uh new and fresh and that like you know these hierarchies and divisions were starting to fall away but as I was thinking about it more, you go back 70 years, 100 years, uh, and perhaps this just shows how young the design field is. But, you know, like, let's just use the Bauhaus, for example. All of those designers were multidisciplinary designers working in architecture and furniture and painting and graphic design. It's almost like we're kind of returning back to this kind of like mm-hmm. old form of design that has found a new currency again, which is kind of exciting. <laughs> to yeah. me you know yeah. what i mean and i think you know you you go even further back to the renaissance and there was no division between the applied art yeah and the fine art. you know you built a yeah michelangelo designed a salt cellar for a pope uh and a right. candle, as well as a building you know and a painting that's exactly right yeah so i think people are much more um accepting of mm-hmm. that kind of that 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 sort of transmission um, between um, what used to be fairly rigid um, disciplinary boundaries, and and so you're at the Royal College of Art now, and I'm curious how you think about this that you were just talking about in an education setting. How do you how do you think about teaching and educating, essentially the next generation of artists and designers in this multidisciplinary transdisciplinary mode well i think that because you're dealing with people i mean we're graduate school only but um you're right, dealing right, right. with people who are um who, who are kind of you know born digital and 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 born mm-hmm. multidisciplinary collaboratively uh, you know the whole idea of collaborative working is much much um second nature to them than you know the sort of the generation of kind of 80s 
you know, superstar designers. Right. You know, they they never saw that world of sort of Philippe Stark um, or, or, right, or, right, or yeah. you know, young British artists, the YBAs, or if they do, mm-hmm. that world just doesn't really resonate with them. I think they're much more right. interested in, um, you know, that kind of the collective um, and the very fact that this year um, the Turner Prize, which is a big contemporary art prize, which is really big in the UK. I mean, it was it was it's always shortlists um, four or so different artists, uh, and this year four mm-hmm. shortlisted artists came together and said, "No, we don't want to be judged um, uh, separately uh, and, 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 and ranked according to first, second, third, fourth, or whatever." Um, we, we're going to kind of come together as a collective because our practice um, is, is so oh. and our thoughts are so similar. Uh, and they put that to the jury, that, and the jury was a bit sort of shocked and, and sort of, uh, you know. <laughs> and again, in yeah. the end, they agreed, and they sort of said, okay, fine, we'll, we'll see you as, as a collective. Um, and actually one of those individual artists, Taishani, actually um, teaches our contemporary art program mm. uh, at, the, at the RCA. So I think, I think, you know, twenty-four-year-olds, twenty-eight-year-olds, they're much, much more used to that. And I think the fact also on our engineering program in the past, you had to come in with a four-year um, first degree in engineering. You know, that was the absolute given for forty years. But the you couldn't do it without that first degree. And now we have chemists and lawyers coming in to an engineering graduate program. Um, I think it's probably a pretty steep curve for them to kind of come up to speed on the kind of the technical side of things, but they yeah. are prized um, by their fellow students, prized by the faculty um, as bringing, you know, that kind of cognitive um, diversity uh, and, and skill set to what would otherwise be um, a very kind of mono-technical team. And I think you know, they tend to present in project work as well. You know, they tend to work on assignments that are, are, are cross college. The most, actually, the most um, popular thing we do at the RCA is something called across RCA, which is a mm. um, a shared sprint program that we run across the institution. Uh, and you have to work with um, students from different disciplines. Oh, that's so interesting. Mm. Do you did. I know I said that we we were going to move on to to RCA, mm-hmm. but this yeah. might connect to the museums again. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I'm uh, I, uh, I'm not sure if I can articulate the question that I'm thinking of, but I think this th- there's an interesting, almost curatorial or presentation challenge. It seems like in so much of. Uh, this new type of work, and I and I'm saying this as somebody who who is for it. I don't mean for this to sound like that this is a bad thing, mm-hmm. but it's interesting. Of how do you then think about presenting uh, projects that are many times no no longer discrete objects? Um, you know, it's not like, like we were talking about at the beginning, it's not a Samsung Walkman or a Japanese car. Sometimes mm-hmm. these are complex systems that are hard to classify. Um, you know, if you could put your, your curator cap back on, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, do you have thoughts on that? Am I, does that question make sense? Do you know what I'm, uh, what I'm saying? I think I understand what you mean. And, and, and you can tell me 
if I do or I don't by the answer I give. But I think that, okay. that you know, museums instinctively or, you know, by default, decontextualize. You know, they basically right, contextualize right. an object. And what a curator always wants to do in a design museum context is, is, is demonstrate the process uh, and the context mm. in which a product Mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. is consumed and that's very difficult to do and I think um, the public is becoming more and more demanding rightly so of a design museum to to do that and I think you know mm. the beginning of my career you know we said we were not going to put objects on white plinths but of course right. we put objects on white plinths <laughs> right, right, right. pretend that we hadn't somehow um, uh, and, and, and you know a sketch alongside would be considered to be process. Um, mm. and I think that that if you most people, I think now most museum goers are probably pretty impatient by that kind of attitude. Yeah, One of the right. Things that you know the new design museum, I think, when opened was was quite mindful of was 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 the need to to kind of get beyond the object on a white plinth and try and present something that was 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 more about the social currents um if manufacturing or the design process but actually the social currents um and the economic currents that had create political currents that had created um an object and there it starts to kind of i guess flow into the kind of world of material culture because you 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 see you know the shepherd farley um poster and you see yeah. you know jeans that were made in the rana plaza um you know, Bangladeshi factory, and you see um, posters by Extinction Rebellion or whatever. Um, and those are really, you're looking at the object as, as created not by the, the individual designer's hand, but by, by, by the social current. That, yeah, that's exactly, um, that's exactly what I was kind of trying to, to articulate, is that it's, there is this uh, kind of contextual social angle that uh you know i would almost argue is is almost mandatory (laughs) Uh, you know you can't take these things out of the context anymore i interviewed justin mcgurk who's the chief curator at the museum now and we talked about how he kind of you know these shows are in themselves works of criticism also um how do do you have thoughts on that in a in a education context? Are are students thinking about this and and focused on this when they are making work? Also, I think do you know what I I I, I think it's so so individual and so singular. I think some yeah. of them aren't. I think that that what curators like let's say Justin are doing is is they're seeing a much more formative role played by right. political or economic currents. They're not seeing it just as a backdrop or a context. They're saying that this is actually something that has formed this object, um, right. formed the need for this object uh, in a much more kind of causal way um, than just a kind of social historical backdrop. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know whether a, a, a designer... I think you know they would probably say, "Yeah, this is what drove me to create this thing." But I think they would still see themselves as, as having the kind of as being the kind of the agent, um, and right, 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 hand in it. 
um, if they were a student at the moment, I, I think most of them would probably, yeah, they would see themselves in that more, I guess, with, with greater agency. In the right. We've spent a lot of time talking about your uh, kind of previous work and, and the work that you're doing now. And I, I think in the position that you're in now, you have a unique vantage point to kind of see potentially where where all of this is headed. And so I'm, I'm not asking you to make predictions or or to to kind of um, you know make guesses or, or or anything about the future. But I'm I do you have thoughts on kind of like we talked about how design has evolved over the last uh, you know thirty years what's next, where this all might be going, how, how, what the way we talk about these things might change? I think that, I mean, it, it, it's such a kind of truism to say that, 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 you know, fourth industrial revolution technology, I mean, the speed mm-hmm. at which um, technology has advanced um, and swept design up with it, uh, Mm-hmm. To such an extent that I just don't think um, it's possible to kind of think about, um, you know, you, product design, industrial design, without thinking about technology and, and the, the technologies behind it. And I think that, you know, in the past, it perhaps was possible to have a degree of sort of, um, I don't know, you could either distance yourself from it or you could say that's a sphere I just don't work in but I think you know with the internet of things and, and mm-hmm. artificial intelligence I think it's just kind of impossible to divorce yourself from 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 the you know from from computer science from material science from from so many of those, you know, those yeah. fundamental um, scientific disciplines and certainly at the RCA one of the things that we're very keen to do is, is just inject more and more um, of that into the kind of the British right. of design, um, because I think without it, most of designers will will not really be equipped um, to, to 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 fulfil their potential and the potential of their ideas. And similarly, I think you know a lot of material scientists and computer scientists are going to be <laughs> yeah. really adrift um, and not really see any kind of application for some of their for, for some of their ideas. Um, if they don't have a, a design interlocutor. Um, yeah. So I think that to me, I think is something that that's, it's really just, um, it's so indivisible now. I think the, the kind of that, that those core scientific disciplines um, uh, and the way that they've come, to, come together with design. Um, I think that even, I mean, in a sense, you know, in fine art as well I think you know that the people are in a way with painting you're always looking back in a sense you've always got one eye over your mm. looking, looking back at what mm-hmm. happened in the past but also but I think most contemporary artists also are, you know they're looking into the future as well and I think that that yeah. is having such a profound impact upon um the kind of preoccupations of fine artists as well um it's 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 it seems like a very different moment from other moments. Um, mm-hmm. Revolutions. Mm-hmm. I think this this sort of the so-called fourth industrial revolution, or the, you know, it's, it does seem a very particular moment. We started this conversation 
and you were talking about how you studied comparative literature and you're very interested in modernist literature and you kind of pushed up against this design world and now have spent your, you know, essentially your entire career in the design world working as a, mm. uh, a curator and a researcher and a thinker and an administrator of these uh, institutions that are, you know, internationally known. And I'm wondering if you think there are things from your time in academia, studying comparative literature, getting that PhD that have helped you in this career that you've ended up having? Gosh. Yeah. I mean, somebody, when they come up, you know, go through my entrails, (laughs) pick that up. I mean, it's, it's about identifying, discerning, you know, following trails, um, being interested in sort of taxonomy, uh, being interested in, you know, meanings and, and um, mm-hmm. sign symbols. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's all about human in, human endeavour and, 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 and uh, an intellectual inquiry and, and, and how people, you know, pursue their intellectual inquiries, whether it's through a made object or whether it's through the written word. Um, I think there's always going to be that sort of, that trail. I'm not sure I'm explaining it very well, but I, I think, you know, that there are, there must be some similarities, but I don't think, you know, it's very different for me to say, well, you know, I was trained um, right. a brain surgeon and brain surgery is what I've always done. Um, and as you say, I mean, actually, I've worked in um, design, material, culture, education um, for many more years than the three years I did yeah. PhD or the seven years I spent at university. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I'm a great believer in people studying one thing and actually doing another. And I always, it really delights me when, you know, people study one thing at the RCA and then go up and to do something else. I, I suppose I have a particular um, yeah. ability to, to, to individuals who do that. Not that I don't have a tremendous admiration for people who study architecture and then become architects. I mean, I do. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, or, you know, amazing people who, you know, study topography and, and then create beautiful type. Um, right. I suppose, yeah, I, mean, I, I, I do feel... Uh, more affinity to the kind of animals that rub up against other animals in the stable because that's the land I am. Yeah, no, I'm with you. And I'm, I'm one of those people that studied graphic design both in my undergraduate education and my graduate mm. school education. And in a lot of ways, I feel like a lot of my career of the last five years has been <laughs> pushing up against that, trying to find <laughs> how I can be one of those people that then goes and does mm. something, mm. something else. And and perhaps, you know, part of this podcast is me at talking to people who are, you know, a little bit outside kind of trying to find those other uh, adjacencies or something. Because um, I'm also... Mm you know, so many of the people that I've talked to on, on the show are people who studied one thing and then somehow find their, themselves in design in some way, which is really interesting. Yeah. And I think it's, it, it, I mean, I, I, you know, when I went to university, um, 
you know, design was or design history was 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 just not on offer. You know, it was, <laughs> right, it was right. there as art history, um, uh, but it wasn't there as you know design history um, until a few years after I graduated. And I, it, it's yeah, it's always interesting to see the people who you know. Very often, so many design curators come from um, a journalist yeah. background as well. It's quite interesting. I mean, people like Justin Gurk, obviously, but um, you know, it is. It's, it's it's interesting, and that's one of the things that struck me when I was at the Design Museum, and I set up a, a, an MA in curating contemporary design with Kingston University. Mm. Um, right. Because we recognised that so often it was you either went for a design journalist as a curator, or you went for an art historian as a curator. Right. No one right. was actually training design curators. So with Kingston right. University, we, we set up this program. It's still going now. Um, at the design museum, which, which, you know, I feel quite proud of. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's great. I, I'm admittedly, uh, sad that we brought this up at the end of the conversation. Cause I feel like there's a whole other conversation in there <laughs> uh, that, that, that we could talk about. But uh, my last question to kind of continue on the, the, the literature thread mm-hmm. for a second, I would, I would love to know uh, what you're reading right now well you've caught me at a good time because i've just finished olga tomarchuk's life oh which i everybody says it's great it's amazing it starts okay. being very whimsical uh and then it just starts to kind of harden and and, and strengthen um and, and start yeah. to kind of really grip you it's kind of nails start to dig into your um into your arm it, it's a fascinating <laughs> Um, book. I think she's an extraordinary writer. Um, so yeah, I, I just enjoyed reading that a lot. I thought that was good. And next on my shelf is going to be um, My Cat Yugoslavia by Patim Slovici, I think he's called. Uh, oh, I don't know. I have no idea what that is. Uh, he's a young, I think he's from Kosovo, uh, and he is doing a PhD in uh, Helsinki at the moment. And he's, this is his second, no, he's, he's, he's published about three, three novels. Um, and he's a bit of a kind of, um, again, kind of, uh, these kind of quite flats of fancy, I mean, more than magical realism, realism. Yeah. Kind of writer. Okay. Next on my list. Oh, I think I'm going to have to add that to my list. Yeah. My cat Yugoslavia. It's such a great, great. Yeah. Yeah. I I I'm so I had no idea what you where you were going with that. So I love, I love it. Um, Paul, thank you so much for this conversation. This was so interesting no, to me. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for being on the show. So did I? Thank you very much for asking. This episode was recorded on April twenty first, twenty twenty. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at ScratchingTheSurface.fm. Thanks for listening.